0: Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney, Eric Veith.
1: Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And we have a guest today, Tony Simon. Hi, Tony. Hello. Hello. You're here to talk about whistleblower cases. That's right. Let's jump right into it. Potential client walks into your office and says, I see bad things going on at my employer and I need some help. What are the kinds of questions that you would ask to get the interview started? A whistleblower case
0: is under a federal statute called the False Claims Act. The False Claims Act was enacted during the Civil War by President Lincoln to stop companies from cheating the federal government. Basically, you make a claim to the federal government or something that you're not entitled to. And so typically, an employee comes in and wants to complain about their employer, and the biggest question as to whether or not a whistleblower claim is available is whether or not the employer is somehow making a false claim to the federal government. The typical false claims act or whistleblower case would be, let's say, an example is a medical provider. And a nurse comes in or an accounting person comes in from their employer who is wrongfully billing, let's say, Medicare and wrongfully billing the federal government for Medicare for services they didn't provide, or they're inflating the services. For example, they're saying they treated something more severely than it was. These are the two questions I always ask when somebody comes in with a whistleblower case. What is your employer doing that you think is wrong or illegal and why? And how are they cheating the government? It can be anything from not just medical claims, but in today's day and age, there are the payments that were made by the federal government during COVID to help companies maintain their employees and keep them hired. In that instance, there have been cases where employers either made up employees and didn't have employees or used the money they were supposed to use for employees
2: for other purposes that were not allowed. So Tony, let me ask you this. This isn't a situation where somebody might be stealing from their company in other words if somebody's just out and out cooking the books or stealing money or inflating invoices if they're just taking money from their company then this doesn't apply that's correct that would just be a fraud claim and that claim is owned by the company
0: against the dishonest employee what we're talking about here is a company that's cheating the federal government and a whistleblower is somebody that has knowledge of that for example an employee who comes in and says, listen, my company is getting money from the federal government that they shouldn't be getting. And in that instance, the plaintiff, the one that files the lawsuit is the government, but we file it on behalf of the whistleblower, who's called the relator, on behalf of the federal government. So basically the employee comes in, says, my employer is cheating the government. We represent the
1: employee and sue the employer on behalf of the federal government. Has anybody estimated how much fraud there is of that sort that goes on? Every year
0: there are many, many reported cases in the hundreds of millions of dollars
1: of companies cheating the federal government. I think I just saw a number of, was it 140 billion under one of the COVID programs alone? Yes. Yes. In
0: fact, there was a report by the federal government and they estimated that with respect to the money that was paid out during COVID
1: 50 to 60% was fraudulent. Wow. So if you're an employee of a company that's doing that sort of thing, cheating the federal government and you notice it and you come to visit Tony Simon, you're probably concerned about yourself keeping your job. So tell me what advice you would give someone like that. I would tell them, don't worry about it. And here's why. There's a benefit of the
0: False Claims Act. The False Claims Act is totally secret. It's filed under seal. We do not disclose the name of the relator. We basically send the lawsuit to the U.S. attorney, both the U.S. attorney locally where it's occurring and the U.S. attorney in D.C. And then the U.S. attorney contacts us and the case is filed under seal. You can't find it if you try and look it up online. It's not in the court records. Everything is secret. And then the U.S. attorney works with us and interviews our client, the relator, gets information and does an investigation without ever revealing who the relator is. If on the off chance somebody gets fired because they're a whistleblower, there's also claims you can file, we can file on behalf of the employee if they get fired, because that's against the law to fire somebody because they're a whistleblower. And I should have said earlier, if you're a whistleblower and the case settles or you get a judgment, you're entitled to anywhere from 16 to 25 percent of what the government recovers. And there's not only actual damages, but there's penalties that can be provided. So there can be, for example, a $1,000 penalty for every violation. If the case results in a judgment or a settlement, the relator is entitled to a
1: percentage of that recovery. So now there's a fork in the road, either the U.S. attorney takes the case or doesn't take the case. Would you like to walk us through that?
0: So what we do is we prepare the complaint, we send it to the U.S. attorney on behalf of the relator, it gets filed under seal, There's an investigation process where the government will actually issue subpoenas and there could be criminal penalties involved, which is what really has some teeth in making companies come clean and settle the cases, is because if they don't and they lose, there can be criminal violations for the people at the company involved. What typically happens is within one to three months after we file, the U.S. attorney will perform an interview of our client. We're with you, we sit with you at the interview, during the interview process, And the government, what you have to remember is the U.S. attorney is on your side, and we're all in it together trying to go after the dishonest employer. After they do the interview, the government will then issue subpoenas, start investigating, and it can take six months to two years for them to make a decision as to whether they will intervene. And so what they do is they make a decision based on their investigation, typically based on a couple of factors. One is, did the employer already self-report? because sometimes the employee doesn't know it, but the employer found out about the fraudulent activity, went to the federal government and said, you know, we did it, we're sorry, what do we need to do to fix it? In that instance, the U.S. attorney's not going to intervene and proceed with a civil action because they've already turned themselves in essentially. In other situations, it might be that there's not enough funds involved or there's not a pattern and practice of fraudulent activity. So for example, if they find out that once or twice somebody just made an honest mistake They're not going to intervene, and the case would go away. But in instances where there's actual fraud and there's enough for the government to get involved, they will intervene. And at the time they intervene, then they're going to try and negotiate with the defendant to see if they can reach a settlement. And if they reach a settlement and they're able to work it out, the case stays sealed and it goes away unless there's an agreement in the settlement to have it disclosed. If the case doesn't settle and it gets tried, at some point in time, the government will actually try the case and they can either win or lose based
2: on the outcome like any other case. So, Tony, let me ask you this. This is all civil, right? Yes. So how does that work with the criminal side of it? The False Claims Act is a civil claim that you
0: file as a whistleblower and you're entitled, as I said, to a certain percentage of recovery if that happens. But in the process of investigating the claim, many times we'll have, for example, during the Relator interview, we'll have an FBI agent sitting there as well. And the FBI agent will be asking questions. Because if you cheat the government, there's a civil remedy under the False Claims Act, but it's also a crime. And so the FBI will investigate. And if they find evidence of criminal behavior, they can also indict or bring criminal actions against the individuals involved. And I say it's a hammer because if you have an employer who's cheated the government and now there's a whistleblower case and there's the chance that some people might go to jail, they're more likely to settle the case if they can. And sometimes they'll settle it with a plea agreement and they'll settle both the criminal aspects of it as well as the civil aspects. But the government will always try to settle the case in a way where they pay a civil penalty and a civil fine and not have the criminal penalties if they can. If
1: I could circle back, subpoenas can be issued as part of the investigation. Is that before intervention? Yes. So it's a pre-litigation from the perspective of the federal government. It's not pre-litigation. There's litigation going on, but the government is not yet in that litigation. Correct. But they can issue subpoenas nonetheless. Yes, they can issue
0: subpoenas. And what they typically will do is they will ask for the names during the interview of friendly witnesses. And especially terminated employees, ex employees, because they're a, big yeah, they're, source they're of a information. good source
2: in most cases, no matter what the subject matter is.
0: Right, and so if they can do it without subpoenas, they will. But they can also issue subpoenas, get documents. Typically, what happens in most cases is the U.S. attorney will contact the defendant; they'll be directed to an attorney. The defendant's attorney will then cooperate and not require the issuance of subpoenas. Most of the defense attorneys that handle whistleblower cases rightfully so, always advise that they should
2: cooperate and try and get the case resolved. So, and I guess part of the reason they can issue subpoenas is really the government's case. You're bringing it on behalf of the government. It's their case already.
0: That's right. And don't forget, there are ways, especially if there's criminal activities or suspected criminal activities, that they
1: can get documents and subpoenas, even if there's not a civil case. It seems like a great incentive for someone to come forward when they're an employee. But I would imagine there's a lot of employees that might want to come forward without a lot of knowledge, they heard it through the grapevine, what's going on, they might've seen one memo. They're not embedded in such a way that they can bring the entire case folder to the federal government. How much information do they need? How important do they need to be to the case in order for the, to be frank, to qualify for that percentage of the judgment or the settlement? Well, they have to be the first one to file. So it's important to move right away. They have to have personal
0: knowledge. So if they're just hearing through the grapevine that somebody did something bad, it may not be enough for them to have standing to file the claim. But if they see a memo, if they see an email, if they actually have personal knowledge where they heard a discussion about the fraud, they can file the case. And typically in our cases, the government will get involved and sometimes they will find other fraud that's being committed that our client wasn't even aware of. And yet when they settle it, all of that gets wrapped up into the whistleblower case.
1: We already looked at a bit at the case where the government intervenes and proceeds. What about where they decide not to intervene? What typically happens at that point? Well, it
0: depends on the reason that the government chose not to intervene. Many times the government won't intervene because they do a full investigation and they tell us, well, we just didn't find a pattern or practice of fraud. In that situation, the whistleblower can still continue to bring the case on their own, But we usually recommend not if it's not going to result in any substantial judgment, especially if the employee is still working there. Because if the government chooses not to intervene, the case remains under seal and goes away and gets dismissed and nobody's the wiser. If, on the other hand, the government says, well, I'm not going to intervene because we don't think there's sufficient funds there to justify us intervening, depending on the amount, sometimes the client may still want to proceed. And in that situation, You know, depending on the circumstance of the case, there are times where we'll stay involved and proceed with the case. And other times we recommend that it's probably not. So does it become
2: unsealed then?
0: It becomes unsealed if you proceed after the government makes its intervention decision. Yes. So
2: the employee probably is not going to be working there at that point.
0: Well, it depends. I mean, they can't fire them. Are you still bringing it on behalf of the government? You're still bringing it on behalf of the government. And the interesting thing is the government can still intervene later. You can then take the case, do all the work, and the government can come back in and intervene later and make that decision. But the case gets unsealed and, you know, that may seem like a problem. But in my experience, most companies pretty well know who it is, who the whistleblower is. They figure it out. And usually it's because I would say 80 to 90 percent of the clients that come to me have tried to get their company to do the right thing. They go to the management and say, hey, this is a problem. I just want to make sure you know this is going on. We need to fix it. And they're told to be quiet. Right. And that's the first
2: place they're going to go. Yeah. You're going to go to somebody in upper management or your superior. Right. And let them know what you've seen and what's going on. Right. Which in the long run sometimes can help with the
0: culpability
2: of the defendant
0: because it's going to help a lot at trial if the whistleblower says, I tried to go to you and get you to
2: fix it. And you wouldn't do it, you know, as opposed to just filing a lawsuit. So what kind of amounts need to be involved? Are we talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars?
0: It can add up. So if it's hundreds of thousands, I would at least want hundreds of thousands of dollars. In most cases, that's usually what the government's looking for. And you're going to get that if there's a pattern in practice of what they're doing. Now, it can be very, very small amounts over a short period of time. And the government just doesn't want to get involved. For example, if it just started. And it's just getting started. And the government looks at it, does an investigation. And then when the
1: employer gets wind of it, they're usually going to fix it, right? They're going to fix it. Does it need to be a pattern in practice or can it be a one-shot, like a big construction project? It can be a one-shot. It
0: depends on the type of case. So if it's, let's say, Medicare fraud, it usually has to be a pattern of practice where it's happened time and time again. But if it's a construction project, for example, if someone says they're a veteran or they're a minority-owned business and they're not, and they lied and received some big project, it could be all their profit from that particular contract. So what are the legal elements of the cause of action? Well, the legal elements of the cause of action is they have to make a claim to the United States government and they have to have some false information in the claim and they have to have done it intentionally. So not by mistake.
2: So it needs to be intentional conduct.
0: Yes, they submitted a fraudulent claim for payment from the United States government.
2: I'm starting to think through the whole idea of the government not intervening, yet the private attorney pursuing the case on behalf of the government, is there any preclusion? Does the federal government ever say, we don't want to, don't pursue this on our behalf? No, but you can't settle the case without
0: their permission. How does that work? Once you litigate the case and you've worked out a settlement, the federal government has to approve the settlement. And typically what happens, we just had one, the government chose not to intervene. The client wants to proceed. The court entered an order that said, you can't settle the case without notifying the government. And the government has a right to monitor the case as well to see how things as are going. And as I said, they can move to intervene at a later time. So they can force you to try it, even though they
1: don't want to be involved.
2: And what about this? Are there instances, I guess, when you pursue it privately, apart from the government intervening and every case, no case stays the same. I mean, it gets better or worse. Maybe you dig up additional information, maybe what the person who came to you, what they're complaining about, isn't the only thing the company's been doing that was illegal. In other words, if it turns out being a bigger case or more widespread than what you had initially, do you just continue pursuing it or do you approach the government again with the new information that's been developed? I think it depends on
0: your relationship with the U.S. attorney. You know, there are certain assistant U.S. attorneys that we have a relationship with. And if you think bringing the government back in is likely to get the case settled because that is a big hammer, especially if you discover criminal activity, then you might want to get the government back involved. But in other instances, you know, you don't need to get the government back involved until the time comes to settle. And you can also get your attorney's fees when you bring the case. So you can petition for attorney's fees in addition to the damages or penalties. Obviously,
2: to get a percentage of the recovery. And so how does that work with your client? What's the incentive for the client to pursue it? Is it the full amount goes to the client and your fees? How does that work? It depends, right? We sign these cases up on a contingency fee basis. So
0: the client is not going to have to pay anything if they don't receive a recovery. They will pay no attorney's fees, no expenses. In a situation where the defendant wants to settle, the client is going to get a percentage of the settlement amount, which would be you know, it could be penalties, it could be paying back, and typically it's a multiplier of the amount of the fraud. So let's say they cheated the government out of $100,000, and the government says, look, we want the 100000 plus there were 1,000 violations, and we can get a 1,000 times for each violation, you know, 1,000 per, so we're going to settle for $400,000. The government then negotiates with us the amount of between 16 and 25% that the client, the whistleblower, gets, and that's the client's portion. Sometimes – the defendant will say, look, we're willing to pay the $400,000, but attorney's fees that includes attorney's fees. And so it becomes a negotiation with the government. Other times, the government will say, look, we're taking the $400,000. we are going to give your client a percentage of that. You negotiate directly with the defendant for your attorney's fees. And at that time, it becomes another negotiation where we say, look, here's what we have in it. Here's what we want for attorney's fees. Does the
1: statute allow recovery of attorney's fees? Yes. What's your leverage with the government when you're negotiating? You say, you know, 15 to 25, why wouldn't they always say 15? It's 16, but they typically do want 16.
0: They want (laughs) 15, but your time is 16. Yeah. Usually it depends on how instrumental the whistleblower is to the case. So for the example you gave, Eric, where you said, you know, they came in there and they really didn't know that much. They knew something was going on. And then the government gets involved and investigates a whole bunch of more fraud. That was the impetus, but it wasn't necessarily a key witness in the case. If the witness's testimony is crucial and needed and the witness provided valuable information during the interview process sometimes clients will have documents and it's important if you have documents keep them give them to your attorney but once you file the case you're told by the government stop investigating especially if there's criminal activity because you become an arm of the government and they don't want you doing things that shouldn't be done trying to take more emails because as you said
1: you could still be working if we can go back to government saying we won't intervene, but the government in the meantime has already issued subpoenas. The government has obtained good information, but they don't want to intervene. Do you, going forward as a private practice attorney, get the benefit of the information from the subpoenas? Sometimes, (laughs) again, it depends
0: on the US attorney, depends on what the information is. You're not going to get the government's work product. For example, if there's an FBI person investigating or a Department of Homeland Security or some other, you know, Department HUD, they're not going to give you their work product. But as far as the documents that the defendant produced to the government or that came from third parties, you're entitled to that information and you can get them from the defendant by just sending a request for production. Do you have any statistics about what percentage of these the government intervenes on? I don't have any hard statistics because there's not a lot of information out there publicly because they're all under seal and the ones that go away under seal, you never know about. In my experience, I'd say it's 25, I don't think it's half. I think it's less than half. But here's the reason why you should always pursue it. We do the investigation, we file the complaint, we get the government involved. You basically give one interview as the whistleblower and we're with you the whole time. Then you wait, you sit back and wait. The government does the investigation and then at that point, if they decide not to intervene, then you have a decision to make, whether you proceed or not and whether you wanna lift the seal or not. But there's really no downside to contacting us and saying hey i think i've got a potential whistleblower case
1: client comes into your office says there's stuff going on here that is a false claims act possibility and you're the attorney thinking i'd like you to go back and before we get the federal government involved i'd like you to get some more information keep an eye out help me build our case before we go to the federal government can you give us some strategic and or ethical concerns you might have about how much you can do that or should do that?
0: Yes. Don't try and get access to anything you're not entitled to based on your employer-employee relationship. So for example- like whatever you, your status is in yeah, the company. Yeah, whatever your status is in the company. So if you're in the accounting department and you're entitled to accounting information, great. And you wanna get more of that information and download it and save it, as long as you're entitled to have access to it. But you shouldn't go into the medical records of a patient if you wouldn't normally have access to that information. Okay, if you're a nurse and you have access to that medical information but you don't have access to the accounting department's information you shouldn't go get the accounting department's information. You want to make sure that you're only obtaining information that you have a legal right to look at. Okay, that's point one. You shouldn't record anybody unless the laws in the particular state allow you to record them. Okay, and again you don't have to do that necessarily. The beauty of the whistleblower case is we file it and the U.S. government, which has a much better way to investigate claims and is entitled to get certain information, we don't necessarily have to get that information, right? There are certain times where they think something's being destroyed and we ask them, well, will see if you can get a copy of it before we get the government involved.
1: Missouri is a one-party consent recording state. Could you imagine a case where a client comes in and he says, My boss is always jabbering about this stuff, admitting it right and left. Can you imagine, or is there a possibility in your mind that an attorney might say, give me whatever you can get? Or do you need to warn the client or do you need to stay out of it as an attorney? How do you handle that? I have never told someone to go
0: in and record someone, but there are instances, clients have come to me where they already have recordings. And typically it goes back to what we said before. They wanna protect themselves. And they go into management and say, listen, we're doing things that are wrong and they record it because they want to cover their own butts later you know for example i had a pharmacist in a hospital and he said look we're violating certain rules and i'm being told by my boss keep doing it so what do i do right and in that instance we ended up filing the whistleblower case and i've had other cases where i actually co-counsel with a criminal attorney because sometimes our client the whistleblower had an active role in the fraud. Wow, that's
2: an interesting point. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, and so what we do is we bring in a criminal attorney and we have a separate attorney representing our client strictly on the criminal case, and we can 99 times out of 100 work out a deal where there's no criminal prosecution of our client, but we wanna ink that deal, and that's why we bring in the criminal attorney before we start providing information. Because otherwise, you know, if the client goes in and starts spilling their guts on what they did and they're admitting to criminal violations, that and can the employer another.
2: might say it was their idea.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those are the times where the federal government will say, listen, we're not going to give you immunity. He started all of that. Yeah. We'll get into conversations where they say, well, before we give you immunity, we need to know more information, right? And that's where, just like a plea agreement, you can provide certain information.
2: I can't imagine, don't most cases have the whistleblower is some part of the conduct, right? Or they wouldn't know about it. Yeah. Yes. They have to have personal knowledge. Most
0: times they're part of the conduct, but it's not... Their decision. So, the decision to commit the fraud or submit the claim, they're not the ones pulling the trigger. Now, I did have a case where the client actually received a financial benefit from the fraud that was occurring. And we had to deal with that. And the government, we worked it out. The client
1: says, I'm only in accounting. I can get you accounting records, I have access to those every day. I know Joe and Sally, who are in medical records, they're friendly to us. They may be interested in joining. And they will get you a treasure trove of better stuff.
0: Well, again, in that particular situation, our client, the whistleblower, is going to have to share their 16 to 25% coverage with two other plaintiffs. If they have enough information to initiate the claim, why get other people involved? One, there's always a risk. Well, you think they're friendly, but maybe they're going to go out and file their own before you file yours, right? And then they're first in line. Or two, they go to management. And then it impacts your ability to proceed with the case in a number of different ways. Again, the federal government has the full power behind them to do the investigation. If you have enough to initiate a case, you don't need
1: to go dig for more information or get other people involved. What are some of the other issues that may come up in these cases?
0: Sometimes clients come to us and have documents or information that they probably shouldn't have. That's an issue that has to be dealt with sometimes. And depending on what it is, we deal with that. There are times where a client may come in and by necessity, they have medical records of a patient. Now the client has the right because they're a nurse or a doctor to have that information. I don't have the right to see that information. So what I have them do are black out or redact the names of the patients. And when we file the lawsuit, that's what we do you know, we will redact that information out so that we're not disclosing it. That's one thing. Another thing that comes up is the potential that the whistleblower themselves may have criminal liability. And you always have to look out for that. You always have to look out for that. Other than that, make sure that you hire somebody that handles whistleblower cases. You know, if you have a good relationship with the Assistant U.S. Attorney, if you file a lot of these cases, you can pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, I have a potential case. What are the types of things you're gonna need? They're very helpful when they can be. You know, they're not going to disclose information they shouldn't, but they can give you a lot of guidance. Whereas if you're someone who's never filed one of these before, it can be tough.
1: You were mentioning earlier, you need government permission to settle. Do you need government permission to dismiss? Yes. So the government can force you to try a case that you don't have great confidence in?
0: Well, I don't think they'll force you, but you have to file a motion and the government has a right to come in and say, judge, we don't think it should be dismissed. At which point you say, okay, well then you take over but you can't dismiss it or settle it without government permission because it is a government It's their case. It's their
2: case. But on the other hand, like you said, they can't force you to pursue a claim. No. So what happens is when you file the case, you have a six-month seal period automatically. It's under seal.
0: With consent, most judges will extend that. There are some judges who say, you get six months, make your decision. And so the government will make their decision not to intervene, but they're still waiting to see what's, what's going to happen, right? But the seal then gets lifted. So typically, the federal judge over the case is gonna hold the government's feet to the fire. They're not gonna force you to pursue the case if the government's not gonna intervene. Because what you will do is file a motion to dismiss, the government will have to take a position on it. If the government consents, it'll get dismissed. If the government doesn't, you say, well, judge, then they need to intervene in the case and proceed with it. They can't force you to proceed with the case what would happen? You just don't do anything and
1: the case gets dismissed for failure to prosecute. If I could, I'd like to go back one more time to the personal knowledge, because it seems like your whole case might revolve around whether there's enough, whether that client in front of you has enough. Do you have any feel for how much is enough personal knowledge where they'll go, yeah, you're a person that we can... I would think any kind of case, you'd want some documentation
0: from it, right? Well, it depends, right? It depends on what is enough. If I'm the doctor who actually performed the procedure and I say, look, my hospital build this and I didn't do that, that can be enough, okay? Now, how do you know, right? I was asked that and that's what the government's going to ask in the interview. How do you know? How do you know they build that? And typically, they're going to have a document that shows here's the bill, right? In other situations, they'll say, well, you know, my boss submitted a claim and claims they're a minority and they're not a minority. Well, depending on how that's defined and how they know, how would they know that, right? So it always depends on the particular type of case. Some cases require more. I can tell you this. If it's public information, if you read in the newspaper that your company's cheating the government, it's too late. You can't file. You do not have standing to bring a false claims act. You have to have personal knowledge of it. You have to be the one that brings it to the government. If you hear through the grapevine that somebody else has filed a false claims Act against your company and you try to piggyback on that, that's not going to be enough. Ask the questions I always ask. What is your company doing that you think is wrong? And why do you think it's illegal or wrong? Why is it false? And how do you know that? Here's the other thing the government looks at in cases when they're going to decide whether to take them. Who is the whistleblower? Is the whistleblower somebody with an ax to grind who may be lying, who may not be believable? Is the whistleblower romantically involved or were they romantically involved in the past? Does the whistleblower have a prior criminal history? Has the whistleblower filed previous whistleblower cases? There are people out there that file serial whistleblower cases, right? Doesn't mean they won't take the case because sometimes they do that because they know what to look for, right? They work for different entities. But they're going to ask questions, personal questions in that interview to try and determine both do they think you're telling the truth and are you going to be a good witness at trial? Are you going to be somebody that's going to be able to withstand scrutiny?
1: If you're a person who has witnessed false claims tax violations at your employer and you want to find an attorney who handles a lot of these cases, someone with experience, is there something besides Google you recommend they do to find that attorney? Yes.
0: So there's an organization, Taxpayers Against Fraud, that I belong to. It's TAF, and they have a whole roster of attorneys that handle these type of cases. You know, regardless of what you think about litigation and about filing cases, what everybody needs to remember is, whistleblower cases under the False Claims Act get money back to the U.S. government that was fraudulently taken. That money is all the taxpayers' money. We all pay taxes. That tax money does great things that the government does, but when it's taken away from the government through fraud, a whistleblower case gets the money back to the government that was wrongfully taken, which in the long run lowers our taxes. I mean, all of us are hurt when people cheat the government because we're the ones funding the government.
1: So in this day and age of the culture wars, this
0: is a non-partisan issue. That's right. It should be a non-partisan issue because every one of us
1: is being cheated when somebody cheats the federal government. Thank you for joining us. It's been really, really helpful to uh, better understand these types of cases. That's our episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And I'm Tony Simon. See you next time.
0: The Jury is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.